Hi, and welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. This will be an episode, probably 10A. And what I'd like to do is mop up some of the areas I probably didn't get a chance to touch on. A, because of time constraints, and B, because I was quite busy when I recorded the last episode. But I think we'll probably mop up a lot of the areas which will cover much of what we've discussed in the last couple of podcasts, which is important. And you know, hopefully just give a fresh perspective on a few things, which I found quite interesting, having had a few days to reflect on much of what's happened in boxing. Um, general housekeeping. September 14th, Umar Sadiq boxes at York Hall. He's fighting Luke Blackledge. I think that's a fantastic fight for him. It's the right distance for him, and it's a chance for him to really put the hurting on someone and get that big name scalp, which will hopefully elevate him to that kind of you know, fringe British Commonwealth level. And then we can start to look for an accelerated career path from there. He's been looking really good in training, looking unbelievably sharp. So if you fancy a trip to York Hall and you want some serious boxing at York Hall, this is probably where you'd want to go and, you know, spend your money wisely. Because it's a real risk you can get caught in a York Hall trap. But if you're really serious about what it is you want to do boxing-wise and you want an experience... Grab some tickets for the Frank Warren Show at the Royal Albert Hall. Thank me later. Just do it. People will tell you, oh, it's not a great card. It's not this. It's not that. It will be the best evening of boxing you'll have. It tops any matchroom show in terms of these two key things. One, there's not a bad view in the place. And two, you will get to meet a lot of boxing people there. I promise you. You know, that's where you take your autograph book. That's where you take your your happy snaps and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's where you build your scrapbook. You know, not at these big O2 shows, which are incredibly overblown and overproduced. So, you know, spend your money wisely this month. Look at your call and also look at the Royal Albert Hall as well. And as always, hit the fighters up for tickets. I know you can buy them online, but if you can get your tickets off Uma, if you can get your tickets off Denzel Bentley, if you can get your tickets off John Pilata, you know, you're helping the next wave of fighters move forward. And these are the guys I promise you are built to entertain. These are the guys that'll put a smile on your face. There's no one that's trying to win by points. There's no one trying to win negatively. They're going for stoppages and they're going for skill. I promise you. So just have that faith and get behind these guys. But now it's time for business. One of the things I didn't talk about yesterday was why this KSI Logan Paul fight is really important for boxing. And here's why. What they've done is they've fired a shot across boxing and they've said, listen, you have two choices. You can stay in the Stone Age or you can join the Modern Age. And what do I mean by that? It's this. The, the YouTube culture. Now, I don't know who all half these bloody YouTubers are, but the Kardashians, KSI, Logan Paul, Deji, Jake Paul, all of these guys who are around this YouTube circuit and that's how they make their money. They have what I call a giving mindset. So their principle is this, if we give you stuff, content, scandal, stories, events, situations, if we give you our lives on YouTube pretty much for free, all we ask of you is your support. Your support when we endorse brands, your support when we're on TV, your support when we have events, 
That is all we're asking. In exchange, we give you unfettered access to our lives. Study after study has shown that giving is the art of true leadership. The ability to give selflessly is what inspires trust and confidence in people. It's when people will follow you, when they know you will give something of value to them, even without expecting anything back. Because how long have these guys been on YouTube and it's only now they want to cash in on a pay-per-view basis because they've given people consistent year after year solid quality. I'm not into this YouTube thing. I'm not... I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a bit of a granddad in that sense. Like, it's passed me by. But what I do know is you get a lot of these guys for free. And that's why they're so successful. Because they give you high-quality content for free. They give you access to their lives for free. And in return, all they ask for is your support. That's their economic value, is to support the 20 million subscribers, the 4-point-something billion viewers of their videos. That's all they're asking for. It's just that simple support. And it's made them multi-millionaires. And in contrast, boxing's a taking culture. Both boxers and fans. It's a box it's a, it's a it's a taking culture. And what do I mean by it's a taking culture? Ask a boxer to do something for free, and you'll get a you'll get a thanks but no thanks. Varying degrees of politeness, but it is literally what's in it for me. Can you do this for me? What's in it for me? You're gonna go and support your mate at an, at a show. Only if you get me a free ticket. Otherwise, why would I go? Take, 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 take. You know, I want to be paid to box. Do you want to sell tickets? No, I just want to be paid to box. It's a real taking culture. Boxers don't give much back to the fans. They really don't. They give very little back. If you're a fan and you go on social media and the content on there is dog shit most of the time, and you can name the boxers who are slacking. A lot of these boxers are lazy. They don't dedicate two or three hours a week to just packaging up some content and distributing it. There are guys who do it. Richie Riakpo did a great one when he went to Cuba and he was able to get enough content that he was, you know, that vlog ran for weeks and it was quite interesting seeing how he was experiencing that. Umar was doing that, you know, and Umar still does that. He still gives you that kind of offbeat content, you know, the salsa dancing, the vegan lifestyle. He gives you something. He gives you a window into his life. And when you buy into that, you'll follow him. You're interested in him now because he's giving that to you. He's not giving it to you with the expectation that you'll buy it. He's giving it to you to say, this is who I really am. Get in touch or get involved. In contrast, a lot of boxers don't do that. It's just, hi, social media. I'm fighting next week. Buy my tickets. Hi, social media. I want to fight this guy. I need you to retweet it so it happens. It's take, 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 take. And what happens when you become a taker is the people who you want to support you are looking at you going, if you're just taking off me, I need to make sure I take off you. So now I'm not going to let you have any easy fights because all you want from me is money. I'm not supporting your easy fights. I'm not supporting your tune-up fights. And when your fight gets cancelled, I don't care about the economic consequences of that because... I need to take something, give me something and let me get some value from this. And if you're not prepared to give them value willingly, if you're not prepared to give of yourself for free, fans are going to extract it some other way. And maybe that's one of the reasons why boxing Twitter is so toxic because boxers give so little of themselves 
that they don't build any goodwill. The only goodwill they build is from what they do in the ring. And that's half an hour. And you've had a whole three-month camp to just invest slowly. Look at someone like Dillian. Dillian's doing MasterChef. I'll call that giving back. Dillian will do an hour and a half interview with Coogan. Giving back. You know, Dillian will talk to fans, do the pictures, have a laugh and a joke. And he's at the top of the tree, but Dillian gives back. He helps fighters. Look, he brings guys like Craig Richards into his camp. Dillian gives. He's, he has a giving mindset, and that's why he's got to the top. Because the fans are like, he's given so much. I don't want him to fail. And you contrast that with Joshua, who doesn't ostensibly give that much. It's not visible what he gives. And so fans aren't on board with him. He's fake. He's manufactured. He's this, he's that. Because the perception is Joshua's just a taker. He's just in it to take all of our money right off into the sunset. And we feel that anything he does give is PR managed and so forth. And so KSI and Logan Paul are the exact opposite of that. They give. And in giving, they build trust and loyalty. And every boxer can learn from that. Get people around you. you know? Look, all these boxers who are friends. I never see these guys get together and just do content. I'd love to see that. Where you have a matchroom boxer, a Frank Warren boxer, an MTK boxer, just larking around talking. Get that on video. At Niard and Joshua Bartzi just joking around and having a bit of an arm wrestle. Or playing FIFA. Those sorts of things where we just like, look, we just want to know that you guys are doing interesting stuff. Let us invest in you. And if you don't want us to do that, cool. But then you just have this standoff and you have this negativity where we don't trust each other. We don't trust the, that these boxes are really about their legacy and they don't trust that we care about them. And it's that lack of authenticity, that lack of giving that makes KSI versus Logan Paul such a powerful concept. Because their fans are saying, look, we will pay for this because you've given us so much. And we're so invested in you and Logan Paul that we want to see how this is resolved because we understand that this is merely one chapter of an ongoing saga. They have people invested and these aren't even boxing people. They don't care about boxing. KSI and Logan Paul don't need boxing because they sussed it. They realize the rest of the world cares about people that give. Boxers need to learn about giving. I don't think many of them have cracked it. So we'll see what happens and we'll see if this changes anything in boxing. I suspect it won't because boxing's in the Stone Age. If you look at what boxing is, it's essentially the model from the 50s, 60s and 70s. With a little bit of kind of Eddie Hearn bullshit WWE narrative building woven into the sort of top layer of it. And a little bit of social media, some IFL, some Twitter, and some Instagram. But no one's really thought of reimagining boxing. Except for two YouTubers who have said, how can we do this differently? And they've shown a way. But I don't think there are many people in boxing that have the brain cells required to learn those lessons, gamble, and execute a strategy that gets their fighter over the top in that same sort of way. By just being a character. You know, credit to Tommy Fury. I hope it was Tommy Fury that went on Love Island. But credit to him for going on Love Island. Credit to Amir Khan for doing I'm a Celebrity. Those are the sorts of things where you're giving to the fans. Because they don't have to pay to consume it. 
but now you have their goodwill. So when it's time to cash in somewhere down the line, you've already invested. You're merely collecting a dividend. So hopefully boxing fans, then you guys all understand this and we all press our boxers to be a bit more generous with who they are and what they do. Because un unless you're Muhammad Ali, God rest his soul, Mike Tyson or someone at that level, you're not too good to give back to your fans. So at this point, I want to just give a quick thank you to Jamie Ingleby and Matt Skelton for kicking my ass about doing an episode like this. I was just floating around on hump day, you know, just wanting to have an easier life of it. And uh, so they kicked my backside in doing so. Thank you. And I think I'm about to cover most of your bases with the next two topics. And Jamie, I'll do the amateur thing when I've properly prepared for it because, I, you know, I want to go into the real depth of that one. But what I do want to touch on, and I didn't get to talk about much of Saturday's matchroom card, but I wanted to talk about Huey Fury. Because, and I've always asked this question, does Huey Fury want to box? And there's a reason why I asked that question. I don't remember seeing Huey Fury in trouble. I don't think he's ever been dropped. I've barely seen the guy wobbled. I've definitely not seen him on shaky legs. He's always looked like he's in complete control. He looks like he can outbox anyone on his day. But he never translates that into the savage mentality. And that's exactly what you need as a heavyweight. When you're a big man, you can't outbox people like this. He almost boxes like a welterweight. I know people say, oh, he's got a jab like Larry Holmes. He hasn't. Larry Holmes busted people up with a jab. There were times where Larry Holmes would land 35 or 40 jabs in a round. But you knew it because the guy's face was lit up. There were bulges and lumps absolutely everywhere. And Huey doesn't do that. For people who know boxing, people who are really involved in boxing, if you've trained guys, you've seen guys like Huey before. And they look amazing in the gym. They look amazing when they spar in the gym, when they hit the bag, when they skip, when they shadow box, when they hit the pads. They look absolutely brilliant. Because that's their happy place. They're there because they belong. They're there because their friends are there. They come in every Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday because their friends are there and they get that energy. And that's what they get high off. They don't like the fights. They really don't enjoy the fighting side of boxing. Not because they're scared. They're not scared. It's not about being scared, but it's about it doesn't feel the same as the gym does. And there's this myth that if you love to train and spar, but you can't do it on fight night, you're a bottle job. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because these are people who are fearless in every other aspect of their life. They make sacrifices. They put it all on the line and they spar their nuts off, head guards on, head guards off, whatever size gloves you want to put on, they're not afraid to do it. It just feels different to them when they do it on someone else's show in a venue they don't really want to be at, around people they don't want to be around and have to wait four hours to fight. It's not about mental strength, it's just about whether that shit interests you or not. And why I say that in relation to Huey, Huey might be that guy who looks amazing in camp, and I don't doubt this. I think Peter Fury's a good trainer. He's a great boxing mind. But he, I'm like, what's going wrong with Huey? In the Povetkin fight, I, 
you don't have to be a boxing expert to know what happened. Huey thought the jab would be enough. He he jabbed ad nauseum. The right hand wasn't coming often enough. It's like he didn't have any confidence in it. You know, he wasn't being aggressive. And the, I think the challenge with Huey Fury is he doesn't take his feet with him when he attacks. So he'll throw the jab, he'll flick it out a couple of times. And by the time he goes to throw the right hand, his opponent's gone because he's already thrown two flicking jabs. So he's, the opponent's not going to be there. But Huey doesn't move with it because if he moved with it, he wouldn't lose his range and his right hands would have a lot more impact. And you saw that. And I don't think it's down to being poorly trained. I think, like I said, I think Peter Fury's a hell of a trainer. And I don't think it's that Huey's scared because if you look at Huey Fury's last seven to nine fights, there's no filler in that. For his age, his last two years, like from Fred Cassie all the way up, there's no filler. That's a solid ass record. He's got a solid record. He's been in with people where you say, yeah, yeah, he's been in hard. So then my question becomes, you know, what's the missing piece? And so, you know, I think back to, to what I saw when I was watching the fight. And I don't even know how you feel, but, but I think my general feelings can be summed up as such. Step up. You have to step up, especially in moments like this. And I'm talking about Tyson Fury. If he wants to be a legitimate, you know, contender at Fury, this weight Fury. class, at Fury, he needs to step it up right now. Well, he's already Fury, a contender, Fury. but if he's trying to be a champion, he's got to graduate. Couldn't put it better myself. There's a step that Huey Fury is capable of making. He's been around Tyson long enough to know what that step is. I don't think it's more training. I don't think it's harder training. He looks in shape and he looks big and he looks strong. It's a mental thing that says, do you want to wipe people out? Is that what you want to do? Or are you content just outboxing at range and then when the big man starts swinging, you don't necessarily have an answer? I don't know what it is with him, but you can't question the challenges he's faced. But you wonder how... It's weird, isn't it? He's, he's almost lost easily, if that makes sense. Because it's not like he's lost and you think... Yeah, 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 he got completely outclassed. Like, he had no answer to this guy. At no point has he been in a position where he's had no answer. He's always looked like he's a superior technician. You know, these are, these, these are truths that we can all agree on. He's always looked like a superior technician. He always looks like he knows what he's doing. But he just doesn't want to pull the trigger. Like, he's not happy in that environment. And I'd like, I'd like someone to ask Huey that question. Do you really want to box? Does boxing make you happy? If it does, cool. Let's find a way to resolve these things. But if it doesn't, then do the honorable thing and find something that makes you happy because he doesn't look happy in the ring and he never looks like he's enjoying himself. You know, and maybe it's being in the shadow of his cousin Tyson who does look like he's enjoying himself. But, ah. Uh, because I really like Huey Fury, the character. He's old school. He's that sort of, no, no, nothing too brash, nothing too loud. Do your job, beat your opponent, move on. And that's what we want to see. And I think it's starting to get to Peter as well because Peter's invested a lot in his son. You know, I don't think he'd be involved in boxing if his son wasn't boxing, if I'm being honest with you. 
but even he's exasperated. Yeah, he's very durable. You, like I said, you know, he's he's got a, he's, he's got some heart on him. You know, and at 24, kid needs a massive lot of credit, you know, for what he's done there. But like I said, I had it a bit closer. He still got problems with that right hand. Judging the distance for me, that was a telling factor in the fight. Because when he did release it, he hit Povetkin once or twice. Matter of fact, he wobbled him. I think mm. mid to late rounds. He just he can't get that right hand properly for some reason. And there you have it. I don't know what you do next with him. I I don't think you'd put him in with a guy like Hergovic. Hergovic is too hungry, and Hergovic is really looking to hurt people. And I'd want to see Huey the bit more of a deterrent, you know, before he was going in with guys who were looking to take his head off. And that's not to say that he couldn't win. It's just saying, you know, he's at a different level where the risk-reward doesn't make sense to him. Maybe you face the loser of Chisora Parker. Makes sense. If Joshua loses, maybe you put him in with Joshua. But Huey will always have options because no one's going to be scared of getting knocked out and Huey's not going to be scared of getting knocked out. But whether the fans want to see this anymore, I don't know. That's going to be the question. How do you rebuild him in a commercial way? How do you get fans excited about Huey Fury again? Because I'd like to see him fulfill his potential. But as I said before, having been a trainer for long enough and having been in gyms long enough, I know that there are guys that look amazing until they have to fight. And then they don't look so amazing. And it's not a fear thing and it's not a bottle job thing. It's just that that whole fighting thing doesn't interest them. You know, that's, that's ultimately what it is. Maybe he's just not interested. But credit where credit's due, he's a tough, durable man. And not many Brits can say that. I'm not sure Charlie Edwards can say that. And that brings us neatly to, you know, our other topic of discussion today. So Charlie Edwards defends his title against Julio Cesar Martinez Aguilar. God, I hope I said that properly. Uh, who's most famous for stopping Andrew Selby. Now, when that happened at the time, I made all kinds of excuses. Number one, why Selby going to Mexico? Was it at altitude? Did that affect him? Did being away affect him? Because... You know, you look at Selby and Selby's a hell of a boxer, but this is what I call the GB curse almost. And he's a, a prime example of the GB curse because he's from that same era from the clickers. Like I said about Luke Campbell, these guys, are they always look good technically. And they always, you know, when you hear Adam Smith talk about amateur pedigree, that's what he means. He means Andrew Selby. He means Luke Campbell. He means Billy Joe Saunders. Guys that look elegant doing what they do, but there's no real deterrent. And Martinez found that again with Charlie Edwards. There's something about these Latin American fighters who have just said, I think we can just bash up the Brits. They've got all the skill and the technique and it looks good on TV, but they don't want to get down and dirty in the trenches. And so he comes over to the UK to fight Charlie Edwards. You imagine Team Edwards have looked at the Selby fight and Selby's a guy that they've probably avoided as well. And they've seen that, you know, Selby got beat. And they're probably reasoned in their head that, you know, Selby was this, he was that. And there's a way to beat this guy. And maybe that's true. But that first round, when Charlie Edwards didn't jab once to the body, didn't, didn't sink one body shot into this guy. Because that's what you do with those sort of guys, like when they're super active like that. It's just jabs and body shots. 
That slows the pace down. That discourages the entry. Instead, Charlie Edwards flicked the jab to the head and all Martinez had to do was just put his gloves up and so many of those jabs hit the gloves. So you're struggling to understand what the tactics are here. You've got a Mexican fighter. You're not really going to get away with the jab. Andy Ruiz showed this. Those Latin American fighters have had that jab in their face their whole careers. They have 101 different ways to get to you. So yes, you have to prepare to box at your best, but you also have to prepare for the fact that they're going to get right on your chest. And Edwards was manfully trying to counter, but Edwards isn't a known body puncher. He's not. He hasn't got that in his locker. And that's what was needed on Saturday night. So Edwards is he's winning, but you get the impression Martinez hasn't come for points. He's just come for the stoppage. And he believed in his power. And so by the third round, he launches it. And he catches Edwards. There's a, there's a left hook to the body. There's a couple of uppercuts to the head. And you know Charlie Edwards is hurt. And then he's cover, as he's covering up, he's just taking heavy shot after heavy shot. And the shots were heavy. Make no mistake about that. They were heavy shots. He was going for the finish. And he got Edwards down to the point where Charlie had to take a knee. Then comes the fatal mistake. The one thing he didn't have to do when he had the fight won. In a fit of anger and frustration, he let another shot go when Charlie Edwards was on the ground. And it gave Charlie the perfect opportunity to play that injury card. I'm not saying he wasn't hurt, but he was rolling around a bit on the mat, which he's entitled to do. Like, once someone makes that kind of mistake, I want the ref to know about it. But the ref didn't do anything about it. Instead, the ref carries on. The fight goes... And then there's a commotion. You know, what's happened here? You know, everyone sees the replay. And, you know, there's general disgust and anger, if we're being honest. When the body shot, that, that finished him up. He was already on the ground. So he had that Something body shot him. on the right hand. There's that, one on the left that hurt him. There's another. Something's hurting him here. He's already, he's yeah, but wait till you see him now. He get, he hits him while he's down. No, he does. I remember that. But there's a he, why is he reacting this way? Is what I'm saying. Well, like, I think he, he got hurt with a head shot. Then he got hurt with a body does, shot because he, he doesn't leave the pocket and he doesn't but hold. That's, that's the shot. shot that, that's the shot that really done the damage. Yeah, but I, I think he would have got up on it for that. Yeah. So there's a, there's a question: Would Charlie Edwards have got up? I think he would have. He's a world champion. You you're not. You're not going to give your belt up that easily, you'd like to think. But could he have carried on and won? I think that that onslaught he took probably took a bit of the fight out of him. And it was only going to get worse. As we know with Martinez, we've seen him before. He's a guy that likes to go for the kill. He's not there for the niceties of the sport. He's there for the victory. He's there to get paid. He's there to go and feed his family. And he, he fights with that same desire. So, is it fair that it was ruled a no contest? Yes, it is, but it sets a worrying precedent. Think about this. We're now having governing bodies overruling the decision in a fight. And yes, we're happy with the outcome now because it's a Brit involved and that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, back the Brit. I try to whenever I can. But, Will this happen if Joshua boxes at Wembley and he takes a dig at someone when they're on the ground? You know, we know Fowler's got form for things like this. We, it happens. Like with, in this case, it was a clear cut. 
you know, it was deliberate because it wasn't in the natural flow of a combination. It was literally, he had a split second to think about it and went, fuck it, I'm going to hit him anyway. He didn't have to do that. It was all discipline. It was anger. The emotion got the better of him and that's what happened and it's wrong. But there are going to be times when people do get put down like that. There was a time on Saturday night, we never revisited the Joshua Bartzi win and that was a low blow on Ford. It was an absolute low blow. There's no debating that. Would he have been able to see the fight out? I sincerely doubt it. You know, Ford was hamstrung by having a short camp and then he was hamstrung by being hit in the nuts and he got hit in the nuts pretty hard. And the ref didn't do that and no governing bodies jumped in. And this is what I mean. Is it consistent? Are we now at a point in boxing where the ref makes a decision and then it has to be validated by someone else before we can say someone's won because you can't carry the fight on that's the problem you can't if you've got someone tired on the ropes and you're beating the life out of them you don't want to give them five or six minutes to recover it's a whole new fight now so all that work you did before was for nothing because now you've got to start again with a fresh fighter and he's had a chance now to reflect and to get some advice in his ear now he's ready for you it, it's an absolute mess I'd rather Suleiman hadn't done that because now it's the precedent. Now we're all going to ask for things to become no contests. Where there's been foul play involved, there should be a no contest. If Dillian's B sample comes back positive, is that going to be ruled a no contest? And if it's ruled a no contest, I mean, is he still the number one contender? All of these things need to be addressed. And that decision on Saturday has opened the floodgates to all kinds of potential challenges now. Because the head of the governing body, the WBC, has set this precedent. You know, he can't walk back from this and say this was an accident or it was done without the proper authority. He did it. But as for Charlie Edwards, we're beginning to find out that these Brits are quite brittle. They look good on camera and it all looks good and it sounds good and the GB system produced guys that could win medals and win tournaments. But these guys are not showing us the killer instinct at the top level. So we need to ask ourselves why. We really need to ask ourselves what's really going on with, with training in this country. I don't want to touch on it too much. I think there's a deeper discussion to be had around training. But it boils down to a discussion I had with a good friend of mine. And I'll probably just elaborate and summarize, you know, in the next few minutes. And then you guys will be free to carry on your day. So I'm there on the phone talking to a very good friend of mine, a man I respect as a trainer, a man who's produced case study after case study of how to produce good fighters. And we're talking about where the problems are in boxing. Number one, you know, the main problem is the amateur system. Any Tom, Dick and Harry can be a coach. And I know there'll be people in the sport going, well, you're a bloody coach, ain't ya? You're a bloody coach. What you ever done? You ain't had 300 bats. I mean, you ain't done nothing, mate. You ain't, you ain't, you ain't done nothing. And you're a bloody trainer, ain't you? Well, I kind of served a long apprenticeship. You know, I served a long apprenticeship under some guys who were respected in the sport. So when I was unleashed, I'd already done my time. But there are guys who are literally coming in. You know, I know there are boyfriends of female boxers who are just getting a license and going, I'm going to train my girlfriend. And I'm like, what the fuck do you know about training anything? Fuck all. What time have you put in? But these guys will do that. Or you'll just get XPTs who go, right, I'm a boxing trainer now. How the fuck are you a boxing trainer? What apprenticeship have you done? It's not just fucking pad work. 
But that's what happens. We've got these guys, and these guys are training motherfuckers. They're training people you support. And then you look at the GB setup, and it is. It's just granddads and their mates training. And the problem with that is they're all training based on what they were taught. Not based on what they know and not based on what works. Based on what they based on what they did. You know, I stood upright, I threw a jab and I moved like this. And that's cool if you're Soviet because the Soviet system is a complete system and it works because it's designed to win tournaments and it's designed to help you win fights in the pros. We don't have that in this country. And we perpetuate the same bullshit because it gets us over the line in tournaments where power is not that important. You know, it's not that important. Now, there are a few people in the GB squad, like Pat McCormack, you know, Ben Whitaker. They were guys who were strong enough to get stoppages. But they've been like that since before they entered the GB system. They're, they're strong lumps. Um, and then there's the, the young Welsh girl, Lauren Price, who looks an absolute savage at 75, who, who can stop. But generally speaking, these guys, they're one-to-move merchants, one-to-move, one-to-move, one-to-hook-move. And... That's not going to help you in the pros against Mexicans that box in multiple dimensions. It's not going to help you against a Nicaraguan who knows how to shift head levels and knows how to go to the body really well. It's not going to help you against a Mexican-American heavyweight who's a bit portly but can throw combinations that you don't even understand because no one in your country is training fighters this way. And so you end up in a situation where all young fighters are learning is what the other guy used to do. Doesn't matter whether it worked or not. There's no none of that question. So what makes me different? I don't have any of that legacy. I don't have any of that baggage. I didn't believe half the shit I was being told worked. So I went out and found out what worked. And once I found out what worked, I needed a way to deliver it in a, in a manner that I was confident would work. And I applied my background developing software. I don't want to go too much into the formula, but essentially, if you understand how to develop software, you'll know how I train fighters. But the output of those fighters is there are no glitches. There are no glitches, there are no errors, there are no defects. Everything they need to perform at the top level is already there from the beginning. Because that's what we work to build. And there's a continuous roadmap, so we keep adding stuff. That's why you, you can tell people I've trained because they just look better than anything you've seen before and they're more effective per minute exerted than anyone else but my approach heresy but i promise you this when more people adopt the approach i do we'll have fighters the americans will be scared of because what you'll be able to do is just switch components in your head and go right this is what i need to do to win i've already perfected that now i'm going to go and do it Errol Spence does it. The Charlos do it. Manny Pacquiao does it. Mayweather did it. No Brits are at that level, apart from a guy like maybe Lennox Lewis. None of these guys are at that level where they could just execute, make adjustments, flip it, freak it, reinterpret it, reimagine it because we don't train people like that. And I know there are boxers that listen to this. I promise you, your trainer's in the same bracket. He's using old techniques and old approaches because he's a granddad. Now, any trainer, and I've helped trainers before, 
You want to come and understand how my method works while my method is almost foolproof. Happy to sit down over a bite to eat and have a conversation. But as long as you guys keep doing this dead thing where you just go, right, I'm going to have you repeating the same dead techniques that don't work. And I'm going to say, well, it's repetition, it's repetition, it's repetition. Well done. And then there are trainers who like to do the really elaborate pad routines. Stupid. Stupid. Absolute waste of time. It looks good on Instagram and fair play to the trainers. Maybe that's why I like Dave Caldwell. Because Dave has no gimmicks in his arsenal. Chris Medley, no gimmicks in his arsenal. Glenn Rhodes, no gimmicks in his arsenal. All these other trainers with gimmicks and they try and tell you that it's all scientific and stuff. Ah, fuck off. Boxing training is incredibly simple. Build the tools. Test the tools. Test them under pressure. Test them in various circumstances. Only when you are happy that they can survive anywhere. Release them. It's not hard. And that's why guys like Charlie Edwards are going to keep getting spanked by these Latin Americans in the lower weight classes. Because those Latin Americans were taught the right way. While these British guys were just pampered. Pampered in that GB setup. You know, this is just, it's just embarrassing. But all you guys lap up these trainers. You believe these idiots are somehow experts in their field. No one can name me 10 trainers in this country who are somewhat competent. I think you get a lot more in the amateurs, but not, not many in the pros, man. There's a lot in the amateurs who get it. A lot of progressive minds. But they're progressive in the sense that they just go and grab stuff that's happening in other sports, but they don't understand how to, how to build it into an ideology and a philosophy because they don't think in those terms. They think very much, I've got to be a trainer. I've got to get it over the line. Got to do it in these sessions. And then all these trainers with their dead techniques. Then you get the guys to try and be smart asses. And they try and have you boxing like Roy Jones without really understanding how Roy, Roy Jones became Roy Jones. It's poor. The quality of training in this country is poor because no one's really understanding how you build sustainable intelligence. If you're not building an intelligent fighter, you're building a fighter that's going to lose at the top level. That's the start and end of it. And most of you fighters are suckers because you're paying 10% to someone who's just like that. You're a sucker, you're being trained by a sucker, and you're too scared to do anything about it. So well done. Well done on blowing your own careers. Make a change. Challenge your trainers. Learn about the process so you can say to your trainer, this ain't working. Or carry on being a sucker. The choice is yours. But guys, look, you know, got a bit heated towards the end, but as always, thanks for tuning in. Get in touch at Highfield Boxing on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget September 14th, September 27th. Time is ticking. Let's make let's make all of this happen. Man. Let's all put smiles on our faces. And everyone have a fantastic day and take care. Bye.